Hello, I'm Andrew, and welcome to this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News for the 14th of February, 2024. Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 we hope you enjoy this week's edition. Reading for you this week, we have myself, Andrew, Angela, Ian, Christine, Helen, Mary, Pete, Mina, Simon, and of course, not forgetting the one and only Flashback Roger. In this week's edition, love is in the airwaves as we hear about two radios that got married. The reception was amazing. Oh dear, oh dear, these jokes are getting as bad as mine. From some of the black country's best loved iconic faces to our much loved places, we get all nostalgic about the black country. We have the quiz with Mina. There is no love lost in the latest football news for West Brom and Wolves. A lovely jubbly did you know section from Flashback Roger. A VIP group update from Helen. We hear from Mina, who has the weather for what could be a lovely week ahead. If you like the rain, oh, that's oh, whoever put that in's an absolute shower. Boom, boom. And we share the love with a special feature looking at why we celebrate St. Valentine in February. Local news to start there with Ian, Christine, but first, Angela. For more than 140 years, it was Wolverhampton's favourite store, the big name that dominated the city shopping centre, the department store everyone wanted to visit, where many cherished tokens of love and giftings were purchased. And now, after a few years of uncertainty following its closure, the former Beatty's department store in Wolverhampton has been bought from the receiver for £6.15 million. 
The future of the landmark building with its imposing Art Deco frontage has been up in the air following the collapse of its previous owner in November last year. But restoration work is now due to recommence in the summer after the property was bought by the Middlesex-based Eden Group. Director George Dillon said the company's plans were largely along the lines of the planning permission granted to the previous developer, with retail use on the ground floor and more than 400 apartments on the upper levels. Mr Dillon said building work would resume in July, with the first apartments going on sale about 12 months later. The apartments would then be released in phases, with the scheme expected to be completed in about five years' time. The famous department store has been empty since 2020 when the retailer's new owner, House of Fraser, moved to smaller premises in the Manda Centre. Developer SSYS, Beatties Limited, bought the building for £3 million and secured permission for a massive redevelopment, but the company collapsed last year and receivers were called in. Fellow director Hayton Ragwani said a team of experts had carried out a detailed survey of the building, which was built in the 1920s, and found it to be structurally sound. There will be no large-scale demolition. The building will be restored, he said. Mr Dillon said this was the Eden Group's first development in the West Midlands, which has been identified as a major growth area. A lot of our developments are in the home counties and London, so this is our chance to diversify our portfolio, he said. We think there is growth to be had in Wolverhampton and the West Midlands, with the need for housing and the greater affordability there. There are really good transport links between Wolverhampton and Birmingham, and also between Birmingham and London. We believe there are a lot of first-time buyers who are looking for somewhere more affordable to live, He added that the company had been working closely with the West Midlands Combined Authority, which had indicated some financial support may be available. With its imposing and captivating presence, Beatties has been captured on many a postcard. From gleaming in all its glory amidst the summer sun in the 1920s to shining bright at night in April 1949, after a post-war ban on shop lighting was lifted. Beatties was the heartbeat of the centre of Wolverhampton. So just what went wrong? Here's this brightly journey all about the department store from delight to demise. The elegant Victoria Street Art Deco frontage now reflects the past, but also betrays the years it has been empty, with some of its ornate windows now cracked or boarded up. Beatties used to be the go-to destination, one of the city's most iconic and successful businesses. But that was before it all started to go wrong in the late 2000s, after ambitious expansion plans ran into trouble and the Beatty's chain of department stores were swallowed up by House of Fraser. The company's landmark store site on the corner of Victoria Street and Darlington Street was sold in a so-called sale and leaseback deal worth £47 million in 2006. The store staggered on until 2019, when it was finally shut up and a new Fraser's store opened in its place within the Manda Centre. Beatties was founded in Victoria Street 
by local draper and businessman James Beattie. It opened in 1877 when it was called the Victoria Draper Supply Store. By 1895, the firm employed 40 members of staff and was enjoying an annual turnover of £30,000. But fortunes took a turn for the worse when, only a year later, a huge fire ripped through the building, forcing it to be demolished and rebuilt. The blaze also destroyed much of the store's stock. What remained had to be sold to buy more items to refill the shelves. Fortunately, the owners recovered from the potentially devastating incident and by the turn of the century, they were back on their feet. But then, in 1912, a second fire struck, prompting another rebuild, which included changing the shop facade for the first time since the store had opened 35 years earlier. An extension was then built leading out into Darlington Street in the 1930s. At the same time as the cosmetic and structural changes were taking place, management were making alterations on the operational side of the business. During the 1920s, the company adopted limited liability, becoming James Beatty Limited, making it an entity of its own in the eyes of the law for the first time. Then, in 1964, the firm became a public limited company, James BT PLC, meaning customers could now buy its shares on the stock market. By the turn of the millennium, BT's had an 11-strong chain of department stores across the country, but bosses came up with the ambitious idea for a 12th store in the growing retail heart of Birmingham. BT's management saw the revamp of the former C&A store in Birmingham's Corporation Street as a chance to launch a flagship branch that would cash in on the soon-to-open bullring redevelopment. Instead, a string of woes led to growing losses at the Birmingham store, finally reaching 1.9 million. Instead of protecting BT's from any potential takeover, its failure turned the company into a target. House of Fraser won the battle with a bid of £69 million, and rapidly closed the unsuccessful Beatty's Birmingham store, which competed with its own branch in the city centre. Takeover saw the Beatty's brand run down over the years, with a string of departments closed. House of Fraser closed the group's Dudley store in 2010, and it was inevitable that Wolverhampton's Grand Art Deco store would eventually go the same way. Up next, we hear from Helen, who, as usual, has our latest Beacon update. VIP Group. We are a group of working age people and or people who live independently with sight loss that meet once a month for a social gathering. We're a friendly bunch that likes to try new activities, build friendships and encourage others to live life to the full. Hiya! On Wednesday the 28th of February is our VIP night. We shall be enjoying a musical masterclass in the restaurant at Beacon Court as we welcome Ukes on the Edge. Ukes on the Edge, who are based in Kimba, are a ukulele group for beginners, intermediate or fully experienced players. The group will be performing a whole repertoire of songs and they will also be holding an interactive session, giving us all an opportunity to try playing the ukulele. The activity cost is £3. We were starting at 6pm and finishing at 8pm. 
To note, the coffee bar will also be open on that night for refreshments. So if all this strikes a chord, please do come along and join us for some fabulous fun. Thanks for that update. Up next, we have a feature article from Soundings contributor Colin looking at the government's recently published Disability Action Plan. The plan sets out 32 proposals that could improve life for disabled people, including steps to prevent and protect guide dog owners from being illegally refused access to buildings and services. Hello, I'm Colin. This piece is adapted from a recent item which appeared on the BBC News website. Annika Zayan was with her guide dog Lassie for more than eight years before he retired. They've been refused access by museums, restaurants, supermarkets, taxis and even airlines on many occasions. The government has now set out its plans to protect customers like Annika with assistance dogs from being illegally refused entry to businesses. Its long-awaited Disability Action Plan sets out 32 measures the government hopes will transform the lives of disabled people. Annika says she's been shouted at by people refusing her access and has even had people try to physically move her out of the way. My guide dog is supposed to give me independence, she says, but those actions take a lot of the independence away again. It also affects her family, who often miss out on days out because of her being refused access. An access refusal is when the owner of an assistance dog, like a guide dog or emotional support animal, is told they can't enter a business or access a service, or where they're challenged about their entry because they have their assistance dog with them. Refusal is almost always illegal. The government's proposals include a new fund to support disabled people who want to be elected to public office, British Sign Language interpretation at all major press conferences and briefings from spring 2024, new research into emerging issues affecting disabled people, improving understanding of the cost of living for disabled people, and exploring a bid to host and deliver the 2031 Special Olympics World Summer Games. A new working group of representatives from assistance dog organisations will be set up to look into how better to educate businesses on the legal rights of assistance dog owners and simplify the process of reporting refusals. The Disabled Action Plan will be published following three months of consultation with more than 1,300 disabled people their families and disability groups. The charity Disability Rights UK says the proposals are light on action and big on more talking. Many disabled people have long been calling for the government to tackle the issues that affect their daily lives. The organisation welcomed the commitment to support disabled people who want to be elected to public office, but said other government commitments such as improved accessibility standards for new-build housing, were not included. Mims Davies, the Minister for Disabled People, Health and Work, said the new proposals would have an immediate impact, while the government delivers long-term reforms. She said they were aimed at making the UK the most accessible and importantly equal place to live in the world, 
so everyone can live their lives to the full and thrive. Labour's Shadow Minister for Disabled People, Vicky Foxcroft, said that despite its consultations, the government had still put forward nothing that actually delivers a better life for disabled people. Labour is to set out some of its own plans to tackle inequality, saying it would extend full equal pay rights to disabled people if it wins power. TNS Soundings Now it's time to test your knowledge as we have the quiz questions for this edition brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's Flashback Quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Here we go. Question 1. Where did Valentine's Day originate? Question 2. In what year was the St. Valentine's Day massacre? Question 3. What was the name of the gangster alleged responsible for the massacre? Question 4. What do birds start to do in Britain? Question 5. What is official flower of February? And finally, question six. What is the official name for Pancake Day? I will be back with you later in the show to answer all the questions. But for now, best of luck. He would have become a much-loved and lauded centurion last week, and yet the luster of the Billy Wright legend lives on undiminished. So, to celebrate the golden memories of William Ambrose Wright, CBE, a Wolves, Black Country and National Icon at 100, up next in the Black Country Talking News, we have part one of Our Billy Wright by those who knew him, a heart as gold as the team which he graced.
When former Wolves director John Harris married his wife Margaret, Billy Wright bought the couple a present in a Tesco carrier bag. It was a precious England cap, one of his record-breaking 105, an incredible gift for the happy couple. When Laura, the young daughter of Wolves chairman Jonathan Hayward, opened up a new autograph book for Wright to kick off, he told her that she was starting with a nobody and it can only get better from here. Former Wolves striker Ted Farmer once attended a Lord Taverners cricket match at Stourbridge with his family, only for his young daughter to be crying in her pram due to the noise from a band playing by the side of the pitch. Wright politely asked them to stop, which they did. And when Steve Bull and Andy Thompson had the television on rather too loudly into the early hours on a pre-season trip, and Wright in the room next door asked them to turn it down, the next day it was he, Wright, that apologised. People will forget what you said, and people will forget what you did, begins the famous quote from American poet and civil rights activist Maya Angelou but they will never forget how you made them feel. And how did Billy Wright make people feel? Two prolific Wolves goal-grabbers who followed in Wright's footsteps as Molyneux legends are unequivocal. Billy was a lovely guy, very quiet, unassuming, says John Richards. He didn't like to talk much about himself. He was more interested in other people and what was going on at Wolves after him. Anyone you speak to will always speak very highly of Billy, and rightly so, he was a fantastic man. Billy was a very good friend of mine and a lovely man, echoes Steve Bull, who was helped by Wright to move into the media at the end of his record-breaking Wolves career. He was a gentleman on and off the pitch, and just a great bloke in every way. For Hayward, who became chairman of Wolves in 1992, it was a huge honour sitting on the board with Wright alongside his father Sir Jack and Harris and his father Jack. Of all the many different things that happened at Wolves, and indeed the stressful aspects, Billy was the most wonderful person to have ever met, Hayward recalls. He was quite special in every way, an absolute delight. He was always the first to ring the family up on Christmas Day when we were farming up in Northumberland. And the story about him signing Laura's autograph book and calling himself a nobody just sums him up. She was very young at the time and I remember having to tell her it probably wasn't going to get much better than that. And it was one of the most precious autographs she could have in the world. I will also never forget doing a duet with Billy singing Moon River on a karaoke machine at the end of one of the pre-season tours. A very fine moment, and one I couldn't quite believe was taking place. Wright's playing career has, perhaps more so than his karaoke skills, quite rightly been documented in infinite detail, and with so much respect and admiration down the years. It's a magnificent story which has been well told. How? Born in Ironbridge, he first came to Wolves after answering a newspaper advert at the age of 14. And when manager Major Frank Buckley felt he was too small to forge a career at the club, trainer Jack Davis fought his corner and he stayed. How he then transferred from right half, right midfield, to centre half, and using a prodigious leap, 
to defy that lack of inches and an incredible ability to read the game, he became captain for both club and country. I decided early on that captaincy is the art of leadership, not dictatorship, said the often quiet and mild-mannered personality. Respect is the hardest thing for a captain to come by and the easiest to lose. How he then led Wolves to the only three top-flight titles in their history in those fabulous 50s, as well as the 1949 FA Cup and proudly wearing the three lions, became the first in world football to achieve 100 international caps eventually finishing on 105 appearances for England, 90 of those wearing the armband. Wright remained indebted to the work of his managers, Buckley and the equally legendary Stan Cullis, for the successes of his career, and was part of that never-to-be-surpassed group of Wolves players whose history and legacy will never be forgotten. But also, as Wright came to the end of his own career, he too helped others as younger talent emerged to the fore. I was Billy's boot boy and he was great with me, said winger Terry Wharton. He told me later on that when he became Arsenal manager, he put a bid in for me, but Stan Cullis wouldn't let me go. He also once asked me to go along to Warsaw Town Hall and judge a beauty contest with him for which he gave me half a lager and a bunch of flowers to take home. He was a smashing chap, was Bill. For Farmer, a striker, he was able to learn not just from Wright's advice and guidance, but also from the example of lining up against him. We used to play a practice match before every season, first team against reserves and colours against whites, with the different kits, and as a younger striker, I would come up against Billy, Farmer recalls. I was an inch or two taller than him, 10 yards faster, physically stronger, and yet I couldn't get near the man. His timing was absolutely brilliant, and he knew everything about the game. He didn't go after the ball, but the ball would come to him. Billy Wright is the finest footballer I have ever seen or played with, there's no doubt about that. Farmer also had first-hand experience of Wright's mischievous streak and sense of humour. Having hung up his boots and before the four years spent as Arsenal boss, Wright was in charge of England's under-23s, for whom Farmer earned two caps and scored four goals, including a hat-trick. There was one game at Fulham when I scored a couple in front of Billy and he came to see me to shake my hand and told me I had cost him a fiver, says Farmer. He said he'd bet someone that I would score a hat-trick. Then, when I did get a hat-trick in the England game against Holland when I came off, he told me the first goal was offside. It was after those spells in coaching that Wright made a move into television, becoming head of ATV Sport in the Midlands and helping to bring through broadcasting success stories such as Gary Newborn and Nick Owen. And it was during this time that he faced one of his biggest challenges away from football. A battle with alcohol. More local news to follow, but now we have another bulletin of practical information and sight loss tips from Pete. If you're struggling with reading and need a magnifier, have you ever considered a video magnifier or sometimes known as a digital magnifier?
Well, B can have a range of video magnifiers that you can come in and try. Now, a video magnifier, you can increase or decrease the magnification so you can turn it up a bit or you can turn it up quite a lot to help you read. You can change contrast settings on a video magnifier so you can look at something in true colour or you could change the contrast to black on white or white on black or yellow on black or black on yellow. It's whatever works best for you so there's a range of combinations there that you can try to find the right one. You can also freeze images on a video magnifier. So let's say there's um, something in your fridge, a piece of some food. You could take a little picture because the angle's a bit difficult to read of it and then bring the magnifier away and then zoom it up. So if it's something like the sell-by dates or ingredients on food, you can read it comfortably there. So video magnifiers range from small handheld magnifiers you can sit comfortably in an armchair to read with up to medium-sized ones which is about the size of laptops and then there's desktop magnifiers with big large 24-inch screens which really make magnification strong. So if you would like to try a video magnifier to see if that would help you you're very welcome to just call Beacon's Sight Loss Advisors for an appointment and remember, bring something you struggle to read with you. So if you'd like to try a video magnifier, give us a call on 01902 880 and ask for a sight loss advisor. 01902 880 -111. Up next, let's have another block of local news. Not a day goes by where I'm sure many of us don't think of, talk about, smile or of a lofabart home, which is, of course, the Boston Black Country, where folks spend two minutes out of every five telling a story or a joke, then laughing for the remaining three, where the rhythm is as steady as a drummer. It never breaks. If you're not joking or laughing, you're basically not breathing, and we love it. However... Ask anyone south of Watford to describe a resident of our region and the straw poll will reveal age-old prejudices. An inordinate number of individuals still have visions of anal canal-like characters, men with cloth caps who keep racing pigeons and dine on faggots and grey pays, men who quaff bovril. Our accent has long been lampooned. Television has enforced the stereotype, with characters from our area often portrayed as dim-witted, often the brunt of jokes in sitcoms and TV ads. In fairness, Brummies suffer the same negative PR. Here, we are more enlightened and cosmopolitan. We know Cockneys don't strut around in pearly king and queen outfits when their shifts at the chimney sweeps are over. We are used to the barbs and misconceptions because black country residents know how to laugh at themselves. But one slight against this region went well beyond the pale. It remains a slap in the face fueled by anti-black country sentiment and snobbery. This is the untold, near-forgotten story of one of the greatest Midlands attractions axed because it drew too many visitors from Wolverhampton, Dudley, Walsall and the surrounding areas. Today, such an action would be headline news on television, internet news sites and in newspapers. There would be vox pops, 
with the public asked, would you want someone from the black country living next door? MPs would have their say. Lenny Henry would speak out. Back in the 1950s, the decision to end the Leamington Spa lights and neon extravaganza stage at Jefferson's Gardens that attracted 500,000 visitors on the grounds of pure prejudice caused barely a ripple. In fact, some whispered, the residents do have a point. Councillors ruled black country folk were not wanted in the Warwickshire rural spa town of Leamington. They were harming its profile. In a council meeting where necklaces jangled in a show of frustration and men became increasingly hot under their winged collars, one member announced, Jefferson's Gardens was born to be a great lady, not a good time girl. Today, where every city and town has its winter attraction and yuletide fair, it's hard to comprehend the pulling power of Leamington Lights. It was an illuminated six-week fairy tale of tableau with titles such as Never Neverland, Aladdin's Cave and The Ocean Bed. Children took an enchanted ride on the Pixie Railway. There were fireworks. There were bands. One newspaper painted a vivid picture. Captain Hook lurks menacingly amongst the bushes. Crocodiles with goggling eyes snap at your heels. A waterfall tinkles down a bank, and Peter Pan, Wendy, and the rest of her family fly through the lower branches of the trees on their series of delightful adventures. Floating leisurely on the still waters of the Leem is Hook's pirate Galleon. In an era where there was still a corner in living rooms that would one day be filled by TV sets, kids, black country kids, would have been left wide-eyed in amazement. The North had Blackpool. We had Leamington lights and factories ferried workers and their families to the spectacular. Yet, launched in 1951, it lasted only a handful of years, a lifespan that brought close to 1,500,000 visitors to the town. Despite the cash those outsiders pumped into local business, the event was scrapped because of the black country invasion. The well-heeled set running Leamington believed it was better to be posh than to make a handsome profit. There was an unwelcome smell attached to new money. The lights years were plagued by bickering, with claims of the beloved gardens being vandalised. Petition was raised in a bid to prevent families from making the annual pilgrimage to the children's paradise. Those wanting the lights switched off were particularly opposed to the beer tent and dancing area. The death knell was sounded at a September 1956 public meeting, with a bid to save the attraction, defeated by 32 votes to 15. The plug was set to be pulled. In an incendiary speech, Councillor Leslie Overell said, Frankly, they attract the wrong kind of visitors. I got into trouble at a recent council meeting for saying we should not become a playground for the black country, but I will say it again. I have nothing against black country people, but if I wanted to spend my time rubbing shoulders with them, I would go and live there. This is a different kind of town, so let us treat it differently. This project has lowered the tone of Leamington. The project had become an intolerable nuisance, a member of the public declared to loud cheers. 
It wasn't Councillor Overell's first pop at our region. In a meeting of the full council three months earlier, he challenged the conception of the Entertainments Committee, that its function was to provide fun fairs for Birmingham and black country people. I don't think those sort of people are any benefit to the town. And I say so bluntly, he told colleagues. The lights themselves were certainly a benefit to Leamington, and those visitors that Councillor Overell detested contributed £8,630 for improvements at Jefferson Gardens alone. We had our supporters in the spa town, and let's pay tribute to Mr H.E. Dormer of the Leamington Society, who pulled no punches at the public meeting. Though Leamington is gay and progressive in some respects, another part of its tradition is stuffy, stuck-up, stupid, standoffish and dull, Mr Dormer bravely proclaimed. The lights had brightened the lives of thousands of people and relieved the rates to the tune of £20,000, a very handsome sum close to seven decades ago. Alderman B.A. Petherston Dilk pointed out times have changed, the nobility and gentry are no longer to be found walking the gardens. The town council heard the illuminations were a pleasure to black country workers who may not see natural and artistic beauty from one week's end to another. Steady on, we didn't all live in back-to-backs, our vision impaired by blanket smog. John Clues, also a leading light in the Leamington Society, courted a possible vigilante backlash by stating, The black country is, in many ways, better off than Leamington Spa, which is surrounded by countryside, mostly cultivated land, not open to the public. The black countrymen, of whom I am one, have plenty of common land to add to parks. Since Leamington does so well from the takings from the lights, Let me suggest part of the money be put to one side to provide free coach trips for those residents who are robbed of the pleasures of Jefferson Gardens during the 10 weeks of the illuminations. These trips could go to the Arboretum at Walsall, Brunswick Park at Wensbury, Dartmouth Park at West Bromwich and various other places which offer some of the lost relaxations of Leamington. The voices supporting our region were drowned out and the lights lost. Interestingly, in 2022, plans were unveiled to bring the tourist attraction back. Dave Clargo, part of a steering group tasked with making the dream a reality, told the BBC, There's always been, I think, in the town an ambition to try to bring back, reinvent, reimagine what the festival could be. So a small group of us got together and have now got some money from the Arts Council to run a feasibility study that will really look at the possibilities of how we would run a new festival that very much celebrates the Heritage Festival, but is very much about telling the story of Leamington today. The good folk of Leamington should be warned. If you thought we could be a nuisance back in the 1950s... Oh, 
next, it's trivia time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. Take it away, Roger. Hello again everyone, how are you all this week? I hope you're all well and ready to welcome spring as there are signs of buds bursting and spring bulbs poking through in my garden. In the road up, let's get on with this week's spot, eh? Now then, did you know that? The origins of Valentine's Day is vague, though in Roman times mid-February saw festivals which included the pairing off of men and women by lottery. This festival was known then as Lupercalia, and it was banned and is thought to be replaced by Valentine's Day. There were, though, several people named Valentines who were martyred in the name of love. One popular story is where one sent a note to his lover from his prison cell and signed it from your Valentine. He came a cropper, though, because his lover turned out to be his jailer's daughter, to whom he had unwittingly given the note to be delivered. Oops! On the darker side is the story of the infamous St. Valentine's Day Massacre in Chicago on the 14th of February 1929, when seven members of the North Side Gang, rivals of the mobster Al Capone, were murdered. It was never proven that Al Capone was behind the crime, which goes down as a black day in Chicago's history. But on a pleasanter note, this time of year sees many birds in Britain starting to build their nests the official bird nesting season being February to August, when farmers and contractors are obliged to limit hedge laying and surrounding work to minimise the impact on any nesting species. And February's official flower is the violet. There are actually hundreds of species of violets growing on nearly every corner of the earth. They're also known as pansies or hearties. Violets are edible and are often used to decorate salads or spring clover fish or poultry. They're often candied in sugar and eaten on their own, or used to decorate pastries, or distilled into a sweet syrup used to make violet-flavoured treats or liqueurs. And of course, 14th of February is Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent in the Christian calendar, traditionally heralding a period of fasting leading up to Easter. It's why Pancake Day of Shrove Tuesday was a day when excess food was intended to be used up before fasting began. Well, so, there you are then. That's it for this week. I hope you've had a loads of romantic ideas for Valentine's Day. Last year, the only post I received with any red on were final demands. In road up, I'm off. And I'll make sure all my bills are paid up and I'll tuck into a bit of chocolate by way of compensation. Till next week then, I'll say bye for now. ta ra a bit. ta ra up now we have to hear what the weather has in store for us. Brought to us, come rain or shine, by our own Sunny Mina. The weather for this week ahead is forecast to remain unsettled with plenty of showers and with light winds from the south to begin with. The temperatures should remain mild for the weekend. UV levels are expected to remain low. The sunrise and sunset times are 7.10am for the sunrise and 5.35pm for the sunset. 
Friday 16th of February is forecast to be wet and breezy with spells of light rain expected throughout the day. Temperatures are expected to be around 11 degrees and will hold up well overnight at 6 degrees. Moving on, the spell of rain looks set to linger into the weekend with some cold polar air coming down from the north. A breezy weekend means temperatures will be slightly cooler, dropped to around 8 degrees. On to next week, where the spells of wet weather will continue to dominate once again, with plenty of light rain and drizzle to look out for. It is forecast for rain to remain in the region on Monday 19th of February and continue right through to Thursday 22nd of February. With light winds from the north, temperatures will continue to struggle to reach double digits and will drop to something a little cooler overnight too. So we may even see some frost in places. Wednesday is looking like it may provide some respite from the rain with a chance of some spells of sunshine breaking through across the region. So there we have it, yet another mixed bag of showers sprinkled with some spells of sunshine and a touch of frost too. As always, do take care and enjoy the weather. Cheers for that weather update, Mina. Now it's time to find out how our local football teams have been getting on. There was no love lost this week as the beautiful game dealt some cruel blows to both our black country teams. Albion suffered double Portman Road heartbreak as Ipswich netted a dramatic stoppage time equaliser and Daryl Dyke was carried off with another potentially serious injury. Albion were, as they have tended to be in several fruitless away trips this term, electric from the opening seconds and forced a decent chance early on, with midfielder O.K. Yokuslu impressing from the off. The home side started to find their feet after a quarter of an hour, but Corberan's men continued to look well-drilled, unfazed, and to the annoyance of the home support, particularly unhurried at Portman Road. But what came next was nothing like Baggy's brinkmanship. Last week's goal-scoring hero Andy Weiman sent a ball from halfway down the left flank and Fellows led the chase. Quicker, stronger and more skillful too, the Albion starlet jinked beyond a defensive challenge before threatening to cut inside into the box. Fellows was too smart though and tucked away a genius quick-fire low near-post finish to leave goalkeeper Václav Hladsky unsighted and unmoved. Ipswich were rattled but did threaten to respond moments later and carved out their brightest chance of the half. Ipswich were becoming increasingly frustrated both from a lack of opening and perceived Albion gamesmanship with Darnell Furlong's booking on half-time, celebrated by everybody of Attract the Boys persuasion. Worrying for Albion was the sight of the excellent Bartley feeling his calf before the interval, and the defender was indeed replaced by Nathaniel Chaloba as Yokuzlu dropped into the back four. Whatever organisational plans Corberan had to start the first period went out of the window as the hosts levelled after just 55 seconds. The goal gave the hosts some impetus and Albion struggled to contain the waves of attack. Corberan had seen enough 10 minutes after the restart 
as Dyke and Mikey Johnston were introduced. It was almost instant euphoria for Dyke, as his first touch, a neat flick on from a free kick, fell into the path of Weimann to convert. But the Austrian had clearly handballed his effort into the goal and was cautioned. Sadly, near euphoria soon turned to disaster for the Baggies and Dyke just 10 minutes after the American's introduction. Dyke had spent approximately 14 or 15 months of his two years at the Hawthorns, sidelined by three separate major injuries, and another could well be on the way. After what was deemed by referee Coote to be a fair tackle, the striker quickly rocked onto his backside, head in his hands, disconsolate. The Baggies physios tried to help, but Dyke could not put any weight on one side, and a golf buggy, acting as a mobile stretcher, was summoned to remove Dyke who was in tears, to real affection from the away end. Albion were visibly rocked, but did not let it set them back. Instead, Corberan's men impressively rallied. The visitors continued to play and drive forward with purpose. Several attacks led to a wonderful second. The brilliant Mowat played a simple square ball to Swift, 30 yards out. Albion's number 19 took stock and decided to have a go. His strike with the instep swerved and dipped as it arrowed for the bottom left corner. It bounced just in front of Hladki and the Czech keeper had no chance. Swift charged towards the corner where Dyke had exited and signalled to his stricken colleague. It was the attacker's first goal since injury in early October. Corberan's side once again had something to hold on to. Ipswich didn't trouble the Baggies new look rearguard much and Albion saw out the 90 comfortably before eight minutes of injury time were signalled. And the tractor boys needed only three. It was last ditch heroics for Albion with bodies behind the ball flying in front of countless shots and clearing cross after cross but ultimately they fell short and couldn't get over the line. A left-sided corner went uncleared on this occasion and dropped to Hutchinson at the back post. This time the Chelsea Loney fizzed a low strike through a sea of bodies and under several attempts to clear. It was heartbreak for the visitors. More was required as Ipswich sensed a dramatic winner. Albion had to stand firm again with Mowat's incredible block before Palmer's stunning 96th minute save from Al Hamadi. It was a breathless finale and Corberan's men could not quite hold on for what would have been a magnificent victory. But the Baggies faithful were still glad for a share of the spoils as the away fans chanted the head coach's name at full time with exhausted players lying prone on the turf. And it was a defensive performance prone to some horrific howlers that left the bees buzzing after Brentford condemned Wolves to a 2-0 defeat at Molyneux. Gary O'Neill went unchanged following last weekend's memorable triumph at Stamford Bridge, but Huang Hee Chan, who had returned from the Asia Cup during the week, was not involved in the squad after picking up a calf issue in training. Wolves generated two early sighters as a result of Brentford's high press, although Ryan Ainouri was able to keep his shot down from the edge of the box, and Mark Flecken produced a smart save to deny Mateus Cunha. In an error-strewn first half, Wolves looked really loose with the ball, missing simple passes and needlessly giving away possession. With Brentford pressing high and quick to intercept, Wolves were thankful to José Sarr for thwarting Brentford with some smart saves 
on a couple of occasions. Although the Portuguese international was guilty of some poor distribution of his own, too. A flat start was compounded by the sight of Wolves' joint leading scorer and last weekend's hat-trick hero, Cunha, limping off the pitch in the 20th minute. Inevitably, not long after, the deadlock was broken by Brentford. Another defensive lapse from Wolves allowed the B's captain, Christian Norgaard, to run into the six-yard box unopposed and nod in a perfectly floated corner beyond Saar, ten minutes before the break. Neto came close to a leveller on the cusp of half-time, but his header from Pablo Sarabia's clipped cross was impressively saved by Flecken onto the post. O'Neill switched to a back four at the break, and Wolves started the second half brightly, with Neto crashing a low, deflected effort against the base of the post. With the home side in the ascendancy, Neto floated a dangerous ball into the penalty area and Dawson got across the front of his marker to glance his header beyond the reach of Flecken to make it one all. However, following a lengthy VAR check, it was deemed Craig Dawson had strayed offside. The elation was short-lived as the goal was disallowed. Neto stung the palms of Flecken with another chance, but the disallowed goal seemed to have taken the sting out of the game. With top scorers Huang Hee Chan and Mateus Cunha off the field, Wolves looked flat. The home side struggled to create anything further of note and Brentford wrapped up the game with consummate ease. After another lax moment, this time Craig Dawson cheaply conceding possession inside his own half, the Bees neatly worked the ball out to the left and Tony showcased his predatory instincts inside the box with a composed side-footed finish into the bottom corner. A second gift of the afternoon to kill off the contest and help see Brentford over the line. Speaking after the game, Wolves boss Gary O'Neill was disappointed by the manner in which they conceded both goals and how his side struggled to find the answers to break Brentford down without both of their joint leading scorers. He went on to confirm that Mateus Cunha will undergo a scan on his hamstring and Chani should be fine and hopefully available for the fixture against Tottenham this weekend. Now, here come the quiz answers, and they're brought to us by Mina. Hello, and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. Feeling confident? How will you score? Let's see. Question one. Where did Valentine's Day originate? And the answer? Ancient Rome. Question 2. In what year was the St. Valentine's Day massacre? And the answer? 1929. Question 3. What was the name of the gangster alleged responsible for the massacre? And the answer? Al Capone. Question 4. What do birds start to do in Britain? And the answer here is they start nest building. Question 5. What is the official flower of February? And the answer here is the violet. And finally, question 6. What is the official name for Pancake Day? And the answer is, it's called Shrove Tuesday. Did you get them all right? If not, not to worry. As I will be back next week to test you all once again. Bye for now.
Now then, someone once asked me, what's the best way to get a date for Valentine's Day? I thought I did right when I told them to look at a calendar. To dispel the gloom of late January and February, many people's thoughts turned to Valentine's Day. But how did it become so popular? And why is it celebrated in February? Soundings contributor Alistair looks back at its origins. TNF Soundings Features from across the UK The middle of February must be one of the dreariest times of the year. Cold, wet and dull. And yet, it's the time when we celebrate love and lovers on St. Valentine's Day on the 14th of February. Oh, the happy bounding flea you cannot tell the he from she, but she can tell and so can he. Whoopee! That was a cheeky Ogden Nash valentine rhyme. And then there's the soaringly romantic Elizabeth Barrett Browning. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. And after that, there's the down-to-earth Aussie lover. No matter what you look like, I'll always love you, dear. Now shut up while the footy's on and fetch another beer. And there's always the old faithful. Roses are red, violets are blue. But St. Valentine, we do not know you. Although it's traditional that Valentine's messages should be anonymous, it's curious that although the saint has a day named for him, he still remains fairly anonymous to us too. So... Who was this obscure saint, who must be the best known after St. Nicholas? Little is known about St. Valentine. We don't even know whether St. Valentine was one individual or one name for several different people. So why do we celebrate him at all, and at the time of year which on the face of it looks most unsuitable? Wouldn't springtime be much more obvious? A feast of St. Valentine was first established on February the 14th, 496, by the Pope, who included Valentine among all those, he said, whose names are justly reverenced among men, but whose acts are known only to God. As he implies, nothing was then known about Valentine's life. There are a lot of legends about eleven men all called Valentine, many of which tell of the saint's ability to restore sight to blind people, all young women. But perhaps the most likely story is that he was a Roman priest arrested and executed when he was caught marrying Christian couples and helping Christians who were being persecuted by the Emperor Claudius the Cruel in Rome. But why on earth should that be a capital crime? The straightforward reason is simple. The Emperor had to maintain a strong army, but he was having difficulty getting soldiers to join his military legions. Claudius believed that Roman men were unwilling to join the army because of their strong attachment to their wives and families. To get rid of the problem, he banned all marriages and engagements in Rome, but Valentine privately defied the emperor 
and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret, so that the husbands wouldn't have to go to war. For this, Valentine was beaten to death and had his head cut off. That sentence was said to have been carried out on February the 14th. Modern academics have dismissed the idea that Valentine's Day was invented to supersede the mid-February pagan holiday of Lupercalia, which originally celebrated the foundations of Rome, but degenerated into something more lascivious. They believe that many of the current Valentine legends were invented in 14th century England, notably by Geoffrey Chaucer in his circle, when the feast day of February the 14th first became associated with romantic love. During the Middle Ages, it was believed that birds paired off to produce eggs in mid-February, and in his Parliament of Fools, Geoffrey Chaucer, the author of the Canterbury Tales, wrote, For this was on St. Valentine's Day, when every bird cometh there to choose his mate. Even William Shakespeare's tragic character Ophelia called Hamlet her Valentine. But is all this just a series of old legends? It's hard to say, but people believe that they are relics of St. Valentine in cities all over Europe, in Rome, Madrid, Dublin, Vienna, and Prague. There are also relics of the saint claimed to be in France, Poland, Greece, Italy, and Malta, and in the United Kingdom, in Birmingham, and in the blessed John's Dunn Scotus Church in the Gorbals in Glasgow. There was even a St. Valentine's Church built in Rome in 1960, to serve the Olympic Village, and it continues to be a well-visited modern parish church. Whatever the truth, celebrating love is a happy thing, and if we didn't have a day already, we would need to invent it. And just like love itself, St. Valentine and his reputation as the patron saint of love are not things you can explain easily, but are certainly matters of faith, and for most people, a chance to show a little joy. TNS Soundings So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish a happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV4 6AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. Ta-ra!